Hank, what I've tried to live by uh, throughout my professional career was, I've always asked myself, A, how can I serve my country? And how can I try to contribute somehow to global progress? I'd like to think of Mubadala always as a responsible investor. Since its creation, the principles of responsible investing, the principles that we now call uh, in some ways uh, ESG, I think are principles that I feel strongly were always part of our DNA, part of the way we operate, part of our management mindset in everything we've done. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Haldun Khalifa Al-Mubarak. Haldun is Group Chief Executive Officer and Managing Director of Mubadala Investment Company, a sovereign investor managing a diverse portfolio of assets in the UAE and abroad. He has led the company's significant evolution for almost two decades. Haldun also serves as Chairman of Manchester City Football Club and City Football Group, a holding company that invests in and manages various international soccer-related businesses. In addition to his commercial responsibilities, Haldun holds a number of UAE government and Abu Dhabi government responsibilities. He is a member of the Abu Dhabi Executive Council, a founding member of Abu Dhabi's Supreme Council for Financial and Economic Affairs, the Presidential Special Envoy to China since 2018, and the founding chairman of the Abu Dhabi Executive Affairs Authority, which has provided strategic policy advice to the chairman of the Abu Dhabi Executive Council since 2006. Aldun, welcome to the podcast. You are a man of many talents and many responsibilities, so I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. Now, let's start at the beginning. You grew up in Abu Dhabi and went to college in Boston at Tufts University. Tell our listeners a bit about how your career path developed. First of all, Hank, thank you for having me. It's a real uh, pleasure and honor to be part of this podcast. Uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of yours. All these years, you've been a, a great inspiration and a, and a great mentor at times. So I really appreciate uh, this opportunity and, and certainly appreciate the time. Answering your question, my upbringing is not very different to many of my uh, you know, peers here in the UAE. It is a country, we'll talk about it a bit later, but I graduated from high school here in the UAE. I went actually to an American school. My family wanted me to uh, understand U.S. culture, so I ended up going to a, a U.S. high school here in the UAE. And then from there on, I, I went to university uh, in the United States. At that point, I remember this was, uh, I had only been to the States once, and I didn't know the East Coast. Uh, I'd never been to the West Coast. And I, when, I, when I was applying to college, it was really <laughs> an interesting experience because I, I had no context. And certainly, had I known what I've learned over the years later, I don't know if I would have still went to Boston. The weather was, was certainly not something I was anywhere near prepared to, uh, <laughs> prepared for. So that was, uh, that was kind of uh, interesting. Uh, my decision to go to Boston was as much to going to the university, uh, which ultimately I went to, which was Tufts. But it was also an element of going with uh, some of my uh, high school friends that, that also got into schools in Boston, and I, and I wanted to stay uh, with, with some friends rather than go to the West Coast. Although in retrospect, I can tell you right now, I wish I had gone to the West Coast. The weather would have been a lot more easier for me to, to transition into. Anyways, 
spent some time in university there, graduated from Tufts, came back. And typically, again, when you're an Emirati, you know, from the UAE, you graduate, you come back. The main sector back then, which was the biggest employer, was the energy sector and the uh, oil and gas specifically company. So I ended up uh, joining as a, as a fresh grad, working in the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. And that's where I started my career. And, you know, from there on, I was fortunate enough to rise and work with some of the most, I think, you know, incredible individuals here in the UAE. And that's helped me throughout my career. And uh, here I am today. Uh, I think uh, the journey of being the CEO of Mubadala over the last uh, 20 years, to a certain extent, mirrors the journey of the evolution of the UAE over that same period. It, it sure all worked out for you. You know, I, I went to school in Hanover, New Hampshire, which has a weather that at times makes Boston almost seem tropical. So I'll tell you. And, and I went to business school on the East Coast. And the first time I visited Stanford Business School was when I was recruiting for Goldman Sachs. And if I'd ever gone to Stanford first, I'll tell you, <laughs> that's where I might have chosen. But in any event, it worked out for both of us. So let's talk a bit about the United Arab Emirates, better known as the UAE. Can you give our listeners a quick primer on the unique governance structure of that country? And then, then we could talk a bit about how such a small nation became such an important regional player in such a short period and talk about maybe what you see in the next 50 years. But first, the UAE and the governance structure. Well, just to start, when I remember, I'll go back to the days when I was applying to college in the United States. I was uh, 16 years old, and I remember one of the college recruiters, after going through my application, called me, or I had, we had a phone call conversation. And in my application, it said, you know, uh, I'm from Abu Dhabi, the United Arab Emirates. I think, you know, that person missed the UAE to just focused on Abu Dhabi. And the question, my first question was, so where in California is Abu Dhabi? And it's, uh, so I had to explain that, no, this is not, it's not in, the, in California. It's actually in a different country. But that was then. Uh, today, I think um, people know the UAE a lot better. When you think about the UAE in, in, in the simplest way, it's a federation, very much like the United States. Uh, you have 50 states, we have seven emirates. The largest two uh, are uh, well-known probably in the US, Abu Dhabi and Dubai. Abu Dhabi is the capital. In terms of population, we have a population about the size of the state of Georgia, so about 10 million people. We've been blessed with uh, natural resources that have been uh, the foundation of our economic development. Uh, in December of this year, the country will be 50 years old, and uh, that's an incredible milestone for the country. 50 years of evolution, 50 years of development, 50 years of economic growth that has led to the UAE today being probably the most economically advanced, one of the largest economies in this region, the largest trade partner of the United States in the Middle East and, uh, and North Africa. And that evolution has started from being a predominantly an oil and gas producer to being today the vibrant, innovative economy and society that we have today uh, in 2021. Yeah, so that's been a great uh, first 50 years. And uh, looking ahead, how do you see the future? So if you look at the, the last 50 years and, and we use 2021 as that uh, critical turning point to the next 50 years. So the last 50 years was about building the infrastructure, was putting the foundation of the country. 
Uh, we were blessed with great leadership. The founding father of the country, Sheikh Zayed, established the federation, put the country together in partnership uh, with Sheikh Rashid in Dubai. And that partnership led to the establishment of the UAE, led to that first stage of development in the 1970s and the 1980s, where the oil and gas industry evolved and continued to grow, where trade and the continuation of the UAE being a trade hub between East and West, Dubai becoming the center of connectivity between East and West, the development of the ports, the airports, the airlines, and at the same time, you know, in complete parallel, the development of human capital development, building that that infrastructure uh, of schools, hospitals, universities, that social craftsmanship in constructing what is now the human capital of the UAE. That was the first 50 years, was really building that foundation. And you look today in 2021, we have gone a long way. Uh, I have images in my office that I'm sure you've seen, Hank, of you know the country in the 1960s, in the 1970s, 80s and 90s, and then today, and seeing you know some of these cities how they've grown and evolved, and it's actually incredible. So today, uh, you know where we sit today is uh, a diverse economy with uh, pretty remarkable infrastructure across the board, from telecommunication to airports, ports, highways, a strong human capital base, even with a small population, able to in a year like 2021 send a mission to Mars in the middle of COVID and and deliver on that, launch and operate its first peaceful nuclear power plant in 2021, and at the same time do some incredible achievements in diplomacy that have not been done in this part of the world for very many, many years. That's an example of the strength of that human capital over the years and that leadership where in a difficult year like 2020 with COVID, these sort of uh, transformational events still happened. And as we stand today, we look back, 2020 was a year in which we had more FDIs into the country than 2019, the year before COVID. So that sets us nicely for the next 50 years. The next 50 years is about taking this solid foundation, this uh, strong competitive position that the UAE is in today, and taking it to the next level. Turning this country from a highly competitive, well-positioned regional power into a global player that can compete on a global level in manufacturing, in innovation, in the future of some of the technologies that we're all you know, excited about while continue to grow the social and human capital uh, fabric of this country. So that's really an inspiring vision. And of course, as you said, you're based in Abu Dhabi, running an Abu Dhabi government-owned investment institution. And Abu Dhabi is really the heart of the UAE. So tell us a bit about Abu Dhabi's economic progress and your priorities. So I'll talk uh, about Abu Dhabi through the journey that I've had personally with, with Mubadala, you know, uh, being involved uh, with, with Mubadala. Mubadala is a sovereign fund, wholly owned by the government of Abu Dhabi. One of the, um, I think, very important principles that our founding father, Sheikh Zayed, established was as this country was developed and, and these foundations that I've talked about earlier were put in place, he came up with a, you know, a vision of having that wealth, you know, that's coming from the natural resources of the country, be invested with a view of long-term sustainability of wealth distribution for the country. And therefore, he established the first sovereign fund, the concept of a sovereign fund, many, many years ago in the 70s, which was back then, I would say, extremely visionary at a country that was just starting to have the principle of establishing a, you know, taking the savings from what we produce in terms of oil and gas and the profits from that resource and putting them in a safe, long-term oriented investment vehicle that would generate sustainable returns. 
let me interrupt for one second because right now this is a $243 billion sovereign investor. How big was it when it started? So, I, you know, by the way, Hank, the sovereign fund I'm describing is the bigger brother here. That's Adia. That was the one that was, that was established back then. Mubadala is the smaller one, and that's the one that you just described, Mubadala, which is a $240 billion fund that we speak today. And, and this fund was established back in 2002 as another sovereign fund. So, you know, that principle essentially grew in Abu Dhabi where sovereign funds and then the ability to manage the state funds to generate a sustainable, risk-adjusted, attractive return for the government was that the philosophy that it ultimately led to the creation of another sovereign fund, which was Mubadala. And my role back then at, the, at this point, which was, it was a very small fund then, uh, was how do we create something different, different to Adia? a vehicle that would invest in innovative new businesses that would be able to generate a diversified creation of business development and uh, economic activity here in the UAE to help in that evolution uh, and diversification strategy of our economy. That was the beginning of Mubadala, was an investment vehicle that would invest in new sectors, new areas that would you know, bring in partners from all over the world to create commercial activity here in the UAE that would create jobs, the right type of jobs, and at the same time, continue down the road of diversifying the economy away from oil and gas. So we started there. Over the years, we've, uh, we've created new industries in the country here, from industrial plays like aluminum, to uh, renewable energy plays like uh, Mazda, to investing in uh, composite manufacturing for the aircraft components, to uh, investing in satellite uh, development and, and launching and, and the telecommunication sector. Again, these are all the type of businesses that Mubadala created in its, let's say, first uh, version, which helped create jobs, helped create industries, helped to create profitable entities uh, with partners and foreign direct investment coming into the country. Over the years, we continued to evolve as the economy grew and became more and more competitive and started to look at investing abroad, at investing in uh, innovative sectors with long-term trends. Uh, and that's when Mubadala, I think that period between 2010 and 2020, that 10-year period. So the first 10 years was, as I first described, the second 10 years was that evolution towards investing uh, and growing substantially abroad with great partners, with a higher level of risk and therefore a higher expectation on return, but also the tangible benefits of being part of the new age economy, uh, getting into technology, getting into life sciences, getting into renewable energy. And now as we next go into the next transition, you know, the energy transition and all these new areas that we, uh, we like very much. This has been the journey overall that I've been part of in Mubadala, and that's taken us from what we started, a $10 million company with one project that went to a, became a billion-dollar company with a couple of projects to now an institution with over uh, $250 billion of assets under management. Wow. So that's, that's quite, a, quite a journey. Now, let's switch to climate change. Abu Dhabi alone accounts for nearly 6% of the world's oil reserves. At the same time, Abu Dhabi is highly vulnerable to the impact of climate change. Talk about how it is adapting its economy to the warming climate and the broader role Abu Dhabi will play in the fight against climate change. So Hank, you know, we're in a region with uh, extreme heat, scarce natural water resources, and accordingly, you know, the UAE is taking a very aggressive action to meet uh, the global uh, climate challenge 
and to play a leading role, both regionally uh, and globally, in encouraging and, and supporting the development of renewable and clean energy sectors. Now, we've been doing that for years. It's not something, I mean, that we started today. I think that there has been a clear understanding and a view on this issue, I would say at least for the last 20 years. And we, in, as Mubadala, have been investing in that space. But I'll talk in both sense, in, in a, in a, from a Mubadala perspective and from a countrywide. But maybe from a countrywide perspective, just to show you the, 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 the kind of steps we took. I mean, the development of our peaceful uh, nuclear power program, the nuclear power program. That was, you know, a, a journey that started almost uh, 14, 15 years ago. Again, with that, with a clear view that, you know, we believe in climate change, we believe in the impact, and we believe in the need to diversify uh, the generation of power and enter into having such clean energy as nuclear to be an important component of our power generation story. And, you know, today I'm very proud. In 2021, we are the first Arab nation to be producing safe, clean nuclear power. We're doing it today. We have a program that will generate almost 20 to 25% of our entire power needs that will be coming from nuclear. And that program has proven to be a very, very successful program. Solar has been a very similar journey. Uh, you know, we started investing in solar over 10 years ago. And today the UAE houses three of the largest solar plants in the world. And we've been able to achieve the lowest cost of generation per kilowatt in the world here in, in the UAE. And that's happened through 10 to 15 years of consistent investment in innovation, in generation and transmission, learning and improving and improving and learning. And today we are at that point where we are able to produce at a cost of 1.35 cents a kilowatt of power solar generation, which is really incredible. You know, I remember when I, when I was first involved in this, we were looking at, you know, 30 to 40 cents a kilowatt. It was uneconomic, highly subsidized, uh, but we had to take a view and we had to have convictions that solar is going to continue to evolve. The cost is going to go down and it will be commercially viable. And, and, and we are there. The next, uh, obviously, important point to talk about is hydrogen. I think the UAE is very well positioned to establish a clean hydrogen economy for exports, given our strong heritage in, uh, in the energy value chain and the strong fundamentals that we have here in terms of hydrogen production, you know, geography, uh, environment, weather, infrastructure, capital, et cetera. So I, think, I see the UAE going forward, becoming very active in that part. Uh, I think hydrogen is going to be an important part of the future uh, within this space, and we will play a big part of it. And finally, I'll talk about carbon capture. I mean, carbon capture, again, and, you know, the UAE is working to lower our uh, carbon impact of hydrocarbons. And, you know, we recognize, and I think it's important to recognize, that the, the world will continue to rely on oil and gas for the foreseeable future. And the UAE can be and will be a leader in carbon capture and reducing its carbon intensity of its production operations. Already, our oil today, uh, Murban, has probably less than the industry average of carbon, carbon intensity. We're also doing a lot of stuff in innovation, Hank. You know, I, I chair the Emirates Global Aluminum uh, which is one of our big businesses that uh, produces uh, aluminum. We started producing aluminum using solar power. We're calling it solar aluminum. And, and it's very exciting. Again, what started as a concept, an idea on a piece of paper, is now actually reality, and we're producing that aluminum. Yeah, so you ticked off some of the major technologies. And one of the bright spots around the whole world is uh, the reduction in the cost of solar uh, everywhere. But you've been a real leader and a visionary there. And of course, the other technologies 
particularly the carbon capture and, and the hydrogen, I think are just uh, really gonna be very important looking to the future. So again, great work. Now I'd like to just come back to Mabadala one more time before moving on. So there's 250 billion sovereign wealth investor. What is your view on the responsibility of global investors? Because you're a global investor, you know, over the next decade. So this is a very important question, Hank. Today, I'd like to think of Mubadala always as a responsible investor. You know, since its creation, the principles of responsible investing, the principles that we now call uh, in some ways uh, ESG, I think are principles that I feel strongly were always part of our DNA, part of the way we operate, part of our management mindset in, in everything we've done over the years. Now, obviously, the world has changed, and I've lived through that change over the last 18, 20 years heading uh, Mubadala. And that change has been a bit more, I think, reflective uh, in the last couple of years as people have become a lot more aware and, let's say, deliberate in talking about responsible investing and in talking about, you know, the principles of ESG. I think, you know, we have to, as, as industry leaders, take responsibility. We have to particularly the successful ones, leaders and, and corporations and investment institutions that generate returns and uh, are able to operate in, in a global scale, we have a responsibility to, to, towards, you know, being clear in what responsibility we have from an ESG perspective, being clear in terms of how we are going to invest, being clear on what we are not going to invest in, being clear in terms of our responsibilities to our societies, our communities, being clear in terms of how we govern I think these are all principles that applied, in my view, 20 years ago, but, but are now, you know, an absolute necessity for doing business going forward. And I think the companies and institutions that have that clarity of vision, when it comes to that responsible investing component, I think will be the, the institutions that, that gain the most in the next 5, 10, 20 years. And I believe that Mubadala is, is well positioned in that space because of our heritage, because of our history, because of the DNA we have. And I think in the success we've had in terms of executing that strategy in the past, and I have a lot of confidence in the future. And I believe that with responsible investing comes sustainable, risk-adjusted returns that fit investors such as ourselves. Amen to that. Now let's switch gears a bit and uh, talk about the US-UAE relationship. Because for as long as I can remember, clearly as long as I've known you, the UAE has been an important uh, strategic ally, particularly in the Mideast. But uh, talk about the relationship, how you see it. Do you expect any significant changes to this relationship under the Biden administration? Let me first say, Hank, this is a well-rooted relationship with a strong foundation. It goes back to the you know day one of the establishment of this country 50 years ago. It's been steady, it's been stable. And I think over the 50 years, what you have today is a relationship that stems probably every important aspect of life from uh, the social side, the human side, the academic side, healthcare, culture, investment, economy. There is a massive overlap pretty much in every area. And, and that makes that stability of this relationship, the strength of this relationship, you know, foundational to any new government or a new party in the United States. And it gives a lot of confidence for us that this is a, uh, a constant. When you look at the relationship today, let's start with trade. 
the UAE continues to be, I think, for like 14 years straight, if I'm not mistaken, the largest export destination of U.S. exports in the Middle East and North Africa. So there's a very strong trade relationship, particularly from exports in the U.S. into the UAE. And it's been a market that has been a good market for U.S. businesses. Uh, on the flip side, uh, UAE investors and, and sovereign funds have been one of the largest investors into the U.S. economy over the last 30, 40 years. Again, consistently investing in a value-added approach, never any issues, always with a long-term vision and always with a positive contribution. So it's a balanced, you know, solid economic business relationship. We have so many businesses, uh, U.S. businesses set up here, you know, thousands, and we have a population that is you know, particularly my generation, uh, but also, you know, the older ones and the younger ones that have, have been educated in the United States. So the education relationship is also very important. Uh, you, you know, we, we have, you know, I will say no less than probably 60% of senior executives and ministers of both the federal government and, and local emirate governments and, and all major corporations in the UAE have either, you know, graduated or uh, both undergraduate or graduate degrees from the United States. So it's a very, very, you know, strong connectivity in that aspect. We have top U.S. universities here, like NYU, uh, that are set up here in the UAE and have campuses here. A beautiful, you know, academic relationship that I think transcends the peoples of both countries. You go into culture, it's the same, very strong relationship on culture. You go into healthcare, the same, you know, we have very important uh, healthcare institutions from the United States here set up in the UAE and then deep-rooted relationships back in the U.S. The Cleveland Clinic has one of the, one of the most incredible hospitals in the world here in Abu Dhabi. So a very strong relationship there. So going back to maybe the, the base question, which is on the politics side of it, in addition to all that, there's been an incredible security relationship between the U.S. and the UAE as partners. When you talk about securities, many times it has different connotations. But in this case, you know, the history of the partnership on security between the UAE and the United States is, is an incredible one with a great heritage there and a great legacy. And then you talk to anyone, in, uh, I think, in the U.S. government, be it from the national security side or on the, on the military side, I think there's a very clear recognition and appreciation of the role that the UAE has played over the last 30 years in this partnership. And I think that's another very important thing to point out. So when I say all of that, that's what makes this relationship, I think, very unique between the US and the UAE. And that's why it is always a constant, stable relationship with an upward trend. It sure has been. And as you pointed out, I think the UAE is one of the few countries in the world where the United States has a positive trade balance, you know, more exports than imports. Now, one of President Biden's first moves on trade was to reimpose tariffs on solar aluminum imports from the UAE. So give us the view from Abu Dhabi on global trade as we emerge from COVID. Well, I think on this issue, that, that's a very important issue. And it's an issue for me uh, that's very you know, I don't, I don't want to say personal, that's not right, the right word to use, but again, as the chairman of the corporation that's responsible for all the aluminum production in the UAE, this matter, you know, impacts me and my business directly. So it was disappointing, I have to tell you. I think the whole, well, the principle to start with of having a tariff on a product in a relationship where it is overwhelmingly in the favor of the United States from a trade balance perspective. So having the UAE suffer further with a tariff on one of its largest export products in the United States, I think to start with was an issue that was, you know, from my perspective, very problematic and uh, to be frank, illogical. 
And we worked very hard to get the previous administration to, you know, finally accept the concept of, uh, you know, going back on this on this issue, given that, you know, we have two arguments. <laughs> I think the first one, you know, the balance is in your favor. And two, this is pretty much the only product that we export with scale into the United States. So uh, finally got there. And then, you know, again, very disappointing. New administration comes in and, and, and we go back to square one. So I hope, you know, again, through continuous dialogue and work and, you know, education, uh, we are able to, you know, again, bring it back to a place where it makes sense for the United States and the UAE. You know, I'm always a supporter of globalization. I'm a supporter of open trade. I'm a supporter of growth and partnership. So tariffs, I always have a problem with that. Yeah. And particularly on a product where it has very little to do with national security, right? And so now let's talk a bit about China, because you and I have had some really interesting discussions on China and China's role in the world in the past. And of course, you've served as a presidential special envoy to China since 2018. So I'll do talk a bit about how you view China's role in the global economy and what role do you see China playing in the broader Gulf region and in the UAE? So Hank, uh, I think both of us know China relatively well. You far more than me with your experience, but it's a country that I've been uh, working with for many, many years. And let me answer it from an investor perspective. You know, Mubadal has been investing in our history for the last 20 years, predominantly West. So our portfolio is based on just a construct of, you know, starting in 2000 and, and really through 2010. And then it's been built with a, with a very, you know, for, for many reasons, returns driven, uh, risks driven, you know, portfolio distributions driven with a Western weight. You know, the U.S. U.S. represents uh, by far our largest portfolio allocation. And then comes Europe and et cetera. So we started looking at China from the perspective of, okay, this is a growing economy. We have to have an exposure to that economy. We have to learn about how to invest and where to invest and how to make uh, the type of returns uh, with the type of risks that we're willing to accept. And I think we spent the first years really just learning and investing slowly in small investments and, um, and just building that track record and building that knowledge. And I think what's clear to me over the years doing that was, I think, a conviction, number one, that China as an economy is the second largest economy in the world, is going to be eventually the largest economy in the world. We are underrepresented from a portfolio perspective in that market, and we need to grow that in the sectors that we like. You know, when we've looked at you know, sectors that we, we've defined as sectors with tailwinds, China has you know, an abundance of opportunities there, and we needed to find these opportunities. We need to invest in them, and we needed to continue to balance our portfolio. So accordingly, you know, China became an area of focus. We've had a very good investment story there, good returns, good partners, never had any issues. At the same time as, you know, this growth of this uh, Chinese economy continues to, to progress, China has become, over the last five years, the largest trade relationship of the UAE, de facto. I mean, the UAE is in a central location between East and West, has always built itself on trade and building these trade relationships, you know, with, with Europe, with the United States, from one side, but also, you know, with India, Southeast Asia, Japan, Korea, and, and now China, obviously, with, with its size being its largest partner. So... You know, I put that all in, in the context of my answer to you, which is this is how we got to where we are today. And this is how, 
you know, uh, the focus and from my perspective as the presidential envoy, why China is so important, because it's important from a trade perspective, it's important from an investment perspective, it's important for us as an economy to continue to grow with our view to both East and West. So that's very helpful. And now let's talk about technology, because uh, China has been working hard to build inroads with the Gulf through its 5G technology. How is that working out? And are you concerned about the U.S. stance on Chinese technology, including 5G? So I think, you know, we look at it very commercially, Hank, and I think that's so important for you to understand, and I think for your audience to understand. The UAE is, is very commercially driven. Our competitivity is based on us, you know, continuously being, you know, commercial, continuously being, you know, ahead of the game, having the best infrastructure, be it airports, ports, et cetera. And telecommunication is, is a critical part of this. So when you look at, you know, our transition from 2G to 3G, from 3G to 4G, and then from 4G to 5G, particularly in that the last three, you know, two to three and three to four and four to five, we've been very competitive in that space and we've been very fast in that space. And that's really helped the UAE be, you know, the competitive economy that it is today. And that's how we look at 5G. We don't look at it with a flag. Uh, we look at it from a technology perspective, from a commerciality perspective, delivery perspective, et cetera. We don't have the luggage as, you know, we don't produce technology. So we don't have the luggage of the challenges between the U.S. and between many of the European countries and China and vice versa. We don't have that luggage. We're looking at it in terms of a, uh, of a supply chain. We're looking at it in terms of a delivery mode. And we're looking at it in the context of maintaining a competitive infrastructure presence. I recognize, I think, technology issues and the concerns that the U.S. have are, are valid concerns. And I like to look at it, and again, with my commercial hat on, I always look at these challenges with a way to find a solution. Okay, give me the challenge and let's find, and particularly with technology, it's about understanding what the challenges are, what are the problems, and then finding solutions that are effective and, and address people's concerns. And, you know, I have a view that, you know, when it comes to technology, when it comes to being part in that global economy, we need to be able to trade and commerce with everyone, and we need to be able to, uh, to test and, and experiment with technologies with everyone and decide what's really the most useful and safe and commercial for us. And that's, I think, what, where it should be. And if there's any concerns on any particular technology, I think, again, the concerns have to be clear. And if there's remedies to be put in place, let's put the remedies. If there isn't, then that's a different conversation. Yeah. And I think what I've heard from a number of countries, a number of allies, they say, fine, we appreciate your concern, but do you have a comparable technology you can offer us? Or can you compensate us in some way? Or are you just asking us not to use a technology which is lower cost and works well for us? So, and I think that's what you're getting at, right? That, uh, Absolutely, Hank. That's, that's exactly what I'm getting at. It's about an alternative and a competitive alternative, not just from a price perspective, but also from a technology perspective. Right. So now let's uh, switch gears and talk about something else. You and I are both enthusiastic about, uh, you would call it football, we, we say <laughs> soccer. But what's more, you're not just an enthusiast, you're chairman of Manchester City Football Club. Were you a soccer player growing up? How did this interest develop? And how do you think about the future growth of soccer as a global sport? So the answer, Hank, uh, absolutely. I was always a, an enthusiast. I love football. I'm, I'm going to call it football. <laughs> Ever since, you know, being a kid, it's always been uh, my passion. 
And I was lucky to be involved in the, uh, the acquisition of Manchester City and now being chairman for the last you know, 12, 13 years of this football team. Being part of a football team and a professional football team is one thing, but then I think what I'm very delighted with is how we took a team in the Premier League in the United Kingdom that hadn't won anything for over 35 years and a team with a, with a history of over 100 years of English football and, you know, over the last 10 years become the most successful team in English football. The team that has won more championships than anyone. Five out of the last 10 Premier Leagues were won by Manchester City and 15 out of the last 20 domestic cups and, and, and championships uh, and leagues have been won by Manchester City over the last four years. So a very dominant force in English football, a very dominant force in European football. We play in about a couple of days' time, the final of the Champions League, which is the pinnacle of world football. And then Manchester City is in the final for the first time in its history. Uh, so it's been a great success, footballing was, but it's been an even bigger success commercially. You know, building this club into what it is today, investing in football globally and creating this uh, city football group, which is now a global uh, sporting and, uh, and entertainment enterprise with football teams from the United States and MLS and New York to the Uruguay, to India, China, Australia, Japan, Spain, France, uh, Belgium. It's a massive conglomerate with you know, shareholders, both East and West. So I believe in, in the business of sports. I believe in the business of football. And I believe in the globalization of that business. And, and I think the model that we've created at City Football Group is the model for the future. It's been uh, piloted, tested, and now it's, uh, it's delivering uh, across the board. And I'll tell you, you're doing it in, there's no sport that's more global, more competitive, and more difficult to stay on top in. And so that record, I, I tell you, is really spectacular. So a final question. So you, Alduna, personally a, a role model to many in the region and around the world, and you work with a lot of young people. What advice do you give to people who are starting their careers today amid all the challenges and opportunities that the world faces? What do you tell young people it's going to take to have a successful career in today's world? Well, you know, Hank, what I've tried to live by uh, throughout my professional career was I've always asked myself, A, how can I serve my country? And how can I try to contribute somehow to global progress? And uh, I think in every decision, I try to make at least, and it served me well, and I hope it can be useful to other young folks. I feel very strongly, and you can hear about you know, the UAE and about my country, and I think that loyalty, that sense of uh, appreciation of the importance that one's country means to them, I think is, you know, it gives you a sense of purpose. It gives you a compass. But at the same time, uh, you know, we are all global citizens, and everything you do, you have to look at it also the impact of the global community. And what that means, are you doing something that is a net positive or a net negative. And it could be in the smallest thing. And by the way, these two, two points apply to everything from the simplest thing to the biggest thing. And I think, you know, putting some basic principles that you believe in at a young age and keeping it simple and every decision you go through throughout your life, trying to put them through that filter. And if you apply that filter and it gives you a positive and you do it, and if not, you know, you reconsider, I think helps you always keep a balance and keep a compass. That served me well, I hope, over the years. And, and I think it's, uh, it's something that I would, uh, you know, I would advise to anybody, whatever your age, fresh grad, just starting, young kid, all the way to you know, professionals. And I give this advice always to some of my executives or people that I'm 
you know, asking me for mentorship or advice, always, you know, good, good is good. Uh, you feel good about it. You're adding value. And, you know, at the end of the day, you can sleep at night and, and feel good about how your day goes and, and, and excited about tomorrow. Yep. I'll tell you, having that moral compass to guide you is just essential. You know, at the beginning of a career, in the middle of the career, and the end of the career. Aldun, this has been fantastic. I know our listeners will really appreciate hearing your insights on a number of important issues. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much, Hank. It's been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to, to hopefully seeing you soon. Good. Me too. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.